Welcome, welcome, blood bags, to another exciting episode of Cadaver Dogs Podcast. I'm Rob Sercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. So today I'm really excited. We're going to talk about a movie that I hold very dear to my heart that I saw first when I was 10 years old. And my grandma said was the bloodiest film she had ever seen. Oh my goodness. Which is not true, because if anyone had seen Rambo 2014, that's the bloodiest movie ever made. In the meantime, I finally watched Fear Street 94. Oh, you did? Oh, did you like it? I thought it was cool. Like, I'm like, oh, great. There's like a witch. There's like slasher movie stuff. There's pre-teen sex. There's teen sex. I'm like into it. There's pre-teen 78 sex. is a lot better. That's what yeah, I heard. But there's such good kills in the first one. There are, um, especially the uh, meat packaging one yeah. with their face. That is yeah. fucking cool. Oh, I voted for that one in the Chainsaw Awards as best kill. Did you? <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm, like, I'm wondering if that's the best kill of the year. I didn't know about the Chainsaw Awards. I don't know what that is. Uh, they're put on by Fangoria. Oh, cool. Oh, shit. Okay, we got to talk about our Chainsaw Awards. In a future episode, we're going to cover our top 10 kills. I don't know when we're going to do that. <laughs> We're not going to do top 10 kills. We do top threes. Yeah, I could never think of that many. <laughs> top threes? I got I got a top 20 kill list somewhere. Maybe I should start. Yeah, I should start keeping one now. Why don't I have one? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, We'll follow that up with top 10 uh, baby kills. Baby kills? <laughs> yeah, like babies killed in movies. Dawn uh, of the Dead uh, uh, remake would definitely be in there for me. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, but that one, that baby's already dead. Human oh. Centipede 2 baby kill that's the grossest one think of any i should be Uh, able to think of one well in dawn of the dead remake they like the baby dies and then get killed again so it's like two baby kills double baby murder yeah Yeah. you can't make a list if you can only think of one oh you can think of more than one yeah david can't even think of train spotting i never saw that oh no oh that's sad what about that movie with keanu reeves where he teaches a baseball team and uh the little kid gets shot you ever see that keanu reeves like is a coach of a baseball team for like underprivileged teens and uh, one of the kids gets shot at the end it's sad that is sad but that's not a baby yeah but it's a kid you know you can mix it a little bit kid murder is sad baby murder is like doable in horror films but like (laughs) kid murder is sad wow Devin. oh i know another movie where a baby died Devin. what what your Which movie one? your movie <laughs> oh oh the movie that i made oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Movie, yeah. <laughs> well now we know that just because you like killing babies that may yeah, that baby gets fucking murdered <laughs> okay so we're getting very off track but before we get started into the episode uh truly please follow us on our social accounts that's cadaver dogs pod at instagram and twitter where you can tweet about us you can follow and comment we post some really cool videos from like monster movie uh, mondays to transformation two days to a lot of cool mashups of like both films we're going to cover and sometimes we even reach into the depths of the internet itself and pull forth some vintage or some like foreign movie posters that you've probably never seen before i'm calling out to a recent one from the audition we got some really cool stuff up on there i want to go follow us now our first film is going to take us off the ground and into the air telling us about it is devin shepherd Never believe what you publish and never publish what you believe. This is the advice hotshot reporter Richard Dees gives to the hungry new hire, Catherine Jimmy Blair. Dees and Catherine work at Inside View, a tabloid newspaper modeled after the sensational rags of the 50s and 80s. 
They print some of the most unbelievable stories like possessed girls turn parents into murderers or gypsy curse flayed fat lawyer's flesh. Deez's stories previously claiming back-to-back front page headlines have started to lose their touch. His editor offers him the opportunity to cover a thrilling new story. A black plane has been landing in various small airfields throughout the East. The pilot dons a long, dark cape and calls himself Dwight Renfield after a character in Dracula. Dwight never stays in one place for too long, leaving behind a trail of murders, each victim drained of blood. Dees pushes aside the story, it's nothing, so his editor gives it to Catherine. But when the body count begins to grow, Dees suddenly has interest and steals the story. Catherine doesn't give up, however, and the two fight to get the scoop on just who Dwight Renfield is. But the more he digs, the more Dees loses his sense of humanity, morality, and sanity. When Dees catches up to Dwight, he finds his greatest fear has come to fruition. The stories are true. Dwight is in fact a vampire. Dees has a psychotic break and is shot down by the police, just in time for Catherine to witness the scene. Now, Catherine's found her front page story. Top gore reporter Richard Dees moonlighted as a serial killer. He was the Night Flyer. Directed by Mark Pavia, Written by Mark Pavia and Jack O'Donnell, based on The Night Flyer by Stephen King. It's really too bad they didn't make the sequel that Stephen King wrote, starring the uh, sidekick character uh, Jimmy, who was going to be the main character this time, following The Night Flyer. And we were going to go more in-depth with Dracula's lore, with Dwight's backstory, and all kinds of stuff. And Stephen King apparently loved it, but the studios didn't want to back a cult film. So, again, we lose out because studios suck. Stephen King didn't really write that many vampires. Um, I mean, Salem's Lot. But why is this one vampires? Why vampires? I mean, bloodthirsty, right? I, f- I feel like that, that's got to be it. It's a bloodthirsty vampire. It's a bloodthirsty journalist. Richard Dees is like so just like, or I guess he's not as much, but just like his editor is so got to get the story. Got to get the story. Uh, kill more people. Yeah. And I like that makes sense to me. Like, what, how do you see that character in the monster world? Oh, that's a vampire. Yeah, I, I really think that uh, Dees is kind of a bloodsucker himself. And even Dwight picks up on this, how he's fascinated with death in the same way. He's kind of as fascinated with Dees as Dees is with Dwight. They have this kind of back and forth relationship where they both want to follow each other, keep on it. Because we notice later on in the movie when Dees finally finds the Night Flyer and he goes into this jet, which is so cool. It's like filled with like maggots and dirt and shit. And that's oh, where it man. sleeps, which is disgusting. And there's just blood coated all over the front of it. But somehow he finds a photo album that's spotless clean. <laughs> but he finds tabloid magazines of Inside View in Dwight's Night Flyer plane. If you were a vampire from like uh, whatever era Dwight Renfield's actually from, would you go into the photo album and see what you looked like before you turned into like this hideous monster that he is at the end? Yeah, but he can switch back and forth, right? Like he turns into a monster when he feeds. Okay, this annoys me so much in all vampire media because they have no reflection. They establish in the movie that we're following that really has no reflection. He should not show up on camera. It makes no sense. And it annoys me so much every time... If vampires don't have a reflection, they don't show up on camera. Wait, but I thought these were photos of him before he was a vampire. That's true. Okay. They're all photos yeah. before he was a vampire. <laughs> but regardless. I would agree, yes. But yes, I agree. <laughs> oh, okay. 
But to your point, that makes me think he would want to look at them because he has no reflection. So that's the only way he could see what he used to look like or what he currently looks like. Oh, that's fair. My favorite part of this movie, which is probably everyone's favorite part, is when Dee's is in the bathroom and Dwight's walking behind him and he pisses blood into a urinal and you can't see him. It's just (laughs) him. And he's walking through and all the fucking mirrors crack. The intro to Dwight Renfield is blood hitting the urinal. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's awesome. That is literally the first shot of him. I love it so much. Well, I, I think it says so much about the character, about how he just has no respect for life. He just drained like 20 or 30 people in the airport and just pisses them out. Like he doesn't have any respect for life whatsoever. Same with Dee's. Dee's will grab a dead body in a traffic accident, drag it out just to get a good photo. And he'll desecrate a grave too. He'll kick it over and rub blood on it. He doesn't care yeah. about any of it. Yeah. I agree with this completely. And Devin, you were even saying that you thought the editor was more vampiric than Dee's. I disagree. And I got this in your intro as well, that you mentioned him sort of spiraling because of the story. But I actually interpreted him to already be there from the beginning, and we were just finding out about it. See, I think Dee's character is interesting because I, I rewatched the beginning of the film to write the intro. And I was like noticing these things that I didn't notice on my first watch, which was... He's not on the front page anymore. The very first intro to him is like him getting mad at some copy editor for um, putting his story on, you know, like page 13 or something. His picture's not there. Um, the picture that he took of, oh, what were we talking about? Dead babies. Um, <laughs> and the editor himself is like, Deez, you haven't gotten anything good in a while. Like you're slipping. And he also rejects the story at first. And so I feel like it's almost like he's not as demoralizing as he eventually becomes or maybe was demoralizing at some point but is like starting to become more humane i don't know i can't Hmm. really understand where he's at in the beginning but there's a big big change throughout the entire film dees hasn't been on the cover for a few months which i guess is a long time in this tabloid world i'm not really sure but his editor is really on his case about it and his editor comes across as kind of like this weasel Devin, you sent me a really interesting article on Weekly World News, which was a tabloid magazine um, that was in the front of supermarkets a lot. And that's exactly what Inside View is. It's probably based off that. That's where uh, Bat Boy and Bigfoot's Lover all came from and all that stuff. Yeah, it's very much Weekly World News because they talk about, um, you know, possessions and hexes, like I was saying in the beginning. But I think it's also very much just any tabloid newspaper. I see it a lot, though, as also being the National Enquirer. And the National Enquirer was a tabloid that basically talked about um, all the sensationalist news. It was like all these car crashes, um, murders, and like actually had pictures of the crime scenes. Um, like we see actually in Inside View in the in the film of the Night Flyer, we do see those images of like bloodied faces and bloodied corpses. And what I found was so interesting was like the first editor or the founder of the National Enquirer, um, Gene Pope Jr. This was his purpose. Like he wanted the magazine to do this. He, he got inspired by seeing a crowd of people surrounding a car crash. And he's like, oh, people want to see this stuff. And so started posting and printing images of car crashes. Like, what? I mean, like, it's true. It's true. And it's like a great business practice and obviously did really well. It's funny because it's it's kind of behind the times of now, because now, you know, you can go on bestgore.com or some other gross websites and just see real unedited photos of dead people and people dying and all this stuff. And that really became popular. We were what, like 
we were in middle school. That's when I started getting exposed to these extreme images. And it's funny because like the sensationalism, like tabloid stuff, everyone's like, oh my God, that's insane. But now the images are way, way more extreme and much more easily accessible because you're going to access it from your cell phone. Right. But it started from these tabloid newspapers and then add internet equals teen looking up these websites when after school, you know? <laughs> what, what I think does differentiate like the reporters in this movie from like the actual tabloid people of like weekly world news is that Dees is basing it at least on some sort of fact. He's like still doing investigative journalism, even if he's going to embellish the stories greatly. Like he says in the movie, never believe what you publish and never publish what you believe. In World Weekly or Weekly World News, they would just make things up after a while. There's very little investigative journalism. They would maybe someone would call in and say they're vampires. They're like, we'll take you at your word. And they'll, and they'll embellish it and say that Nosferatu woke up from his 1,000-year-old crypt and uh, <laughs> his hair looks terrible. You know, something crazy like that. Well, his hair would look terrible. He can't see himself in a mirror. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But... Okay, so so that reminds me. If you can't see yourself in the mirror, who combs your hair? You're obviously your fledglings, right? So <laughs> Dwight has power over people. Some of his victims, they all seem kind of like infatuated with him. A hypnotic control over his victims. Which is yeah. a classic vampire ability. I mean, we even saw that in Fright Night, and I think in The Lost Boys as well, in both of those movies, the vampire hypnotizing their victims. Uh, Fright Night, of course, had that amazing scene in the dance club. Uh, we did an episode on those movies. That's why I'm referencing them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And what's so cool about his interaction with his fledglings is he takes the name of a famous vampire fledgling, Dwight Renfield. He's he's mixing Dwight Fry, who played the fledgling in the original one of the original Dracula movies from 1931. That's the one with Bela Lugosi, correct? Yes. So there's a lot of very classic vampire lore in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I don't know if he follows every classic vampire rule. It's it, it's just not a plot or anything. It's just things that aren't established. Like, we never actually see him sire someone. So we don't know how what the origin of vampires are in this world, if it's still transmitted through bite. And I guess he can't fly because he is uses an, an airplane. Oh, why does he use an airplane? I don't <laughs> understand. I, I, I like... I kept trying to figure out what is the significance of the airplane? Is it just a cool concept? Vampires in an airplane? So Dwight was obviously a pilot before he turned into a vampire because he's in the photos. And we've established yeah. that this movie does follow the rules right. pretty well on showing up on camera or in mirrors, which is pretty cool. Uh, I don't know. I, I just wonder if it's a cool thing or if the plane is a metaphor for something or whatnot. I feel like it, it might, I, I don't want to say it's just a cool thing, because even if there's not an intended meaning, there's probably still some meaning you can pull out. And to our listeners, if you have some ideas on us, please uh, tweet at us. Let us know what, what you think the significance of the plane is. It might be just as simple as Stephen King wants you to doubt whether this is really a vampire or not for most mm. of the story. And if he's actually flying, then you know he's a vampire, but if he's in a plane, oh, maybe he's just a serial killer with the vampire motif. One of the things that I did like that was kind of like a modern take or a different take on vampirism in this movie and made me think like, oh, is he a vampire? Is he a real person? Is that when we do see um, his victims, 
it isn't just like two small holes in the side of the neck yeah. like we usually see. It's like literally a gash that realistically would drain the blood of a of a person. And I was like, oh, so it's not necessarily someone sucking a lot of blood. It could be, but it could also just be a person trying to emulate a vampire and slicing someone's neck and draining them of blood. And then yeah. tossing it all over the insides of their airplane because there's so much blood in there. <laughs> Yeah, um, they were talking about it looked like someone was jamming like railroad spikes into their neck. And when you see the bodies, it really does look like that. But I, I do want to propose my very speculative view on maybe why he was flying into these like isolated little airports. And I think it might be they're trying to kind of emulate the towns and the areas where these tabloid um, magazine stories take place. Because they're always in these isolated, weird, like little mm, backwards towns yeah. or something. and. Uh, th maybe these are the types of people who they think might be reading this stuff, might be believing this stuff. You know, the uh, I think they call them hicks in the movie. Um, you know, the, these people who might be less educated and are uh, less exposed to the outside world where, you know, myths like Bigfoot or whatever, at least stereotypically would be like flourishing. And it's worth noting, uh, like we're, we've been talking about how he covers his tracks, but he also... Uh, wants people to know that he exists. He, he he has a public persona, so to speak. Like, he's wearing a fucking cape. He's like, my name is Dwight Renfield. Tell your friends. Right, and Deez <laughs> calls it from the beginning. He's like, the cops are going to find this guy. He literally has, uh, like, the flight or his plane number registered in the book. Like, he doesn't hide <laughs> that he landed there. Yeah. It's pretty cool. There is a uh, suspension disbelief, but it's also... Everywhere the guy lands, he just hypnotizes everyone. So it's like, how are you going to catch him? It, it might have even been more interesting if he was actually just a serial killer emulating a vampire. That He wants the tabloid journalism that the movie's essentially about. He, he wants that reporting. He is yeah. the fake news. Except he's not. He's real. Yeah, but I I mean, that's also kind of the point. Like, Dees is finally getting what he's been looking for this whole time. Like, the truly insane being real. It also, like, as much as we suspend our disbelief that a hypnotic vampire is flying around in a plane that should be easily found, <laughs> if it wasn't a vampire without hypnotism or whatever he has, he would obviously just be instantly caught. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they definitely needed that Yeah, in there. It is fun, too, that, that Dwight plays with Dee's a little bit. Like, he knows Dee's is on his trail and, like, leaves him that note at the bar and um, keeps leaving him little clues. And then eventually, like, does lead deeds deeds to him at the end no i love how it gives him a bloody mary oh so good <laughs> it's almost as though dwight was planning on framing deeds although i don't know if that really yeah. makes sense or not it's totally blair who just picks up on it and goes ah oh, let's just say deeds was the night fire that'll make well, a better story i mean she okay. goes with my idea that it was a fake i okay i have a few thoughts on this because one and this ties into your question earlier david I kept trying to figure out why it was at the end when Dee's is taking photos of all the bodies and has shown like no remorse for this kind of stuff up to this point. Comes upon a body at, that has a cross and all of a sudden he's like, oh shit, I've gone too far. Yeah. Right? Like he's almost like scared of the cross in a way. And I was like, why is this significant? It can't be – we haven't seen any other religious tropes in this, any other religion in this at all. So it was it was a weird choice. But then maybe it's because he himself is like becoming a vampire that the cross kind of mm. like deflects him oh, in a way. 
Oh, I, I was, I just viewed it as more like, it was like pure like desecration because mm-hmm. yeah, you walk over to a traffic stop and it's like one or two dead bodies or you see one at a time, but he literally walks into a massacre. He'd probably never been in, in that kind of yeah. scenario before where it's a straight up massacre. And I think you'd have to be a special type of person to not have that affect you at all. But so that's where he draws the line is, oh, man, God is present. So must no longer take photos of dead bodies. <laughs> I didn't even honestly, I don't remember the cross. I didn't place any significance into it. I just thought, oh, this they're like 30 dead bodies. And that's what's getting to him. He pulls the cross out of one of the victim's mouths. And that's. When oh, he, like, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. I think it's just a fucked up way to kill someone. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's some Silence of the Lambs shit right there. He wouldn't have been able to touch it, though. I, I don't know if Cross is effective. I'm wondering. Yeah, we it's never established if Cross is effective or yeah. not. No, but just yeah. they stay so true to normal or to typical Except they don't. Lore. He can't fly. Except for that. Oh, oh so my other point on that was um, Dee's constantly is talking about, I have m- my own plane. You know, the only things that matter to me are this and this and my plane. Um, and I was like, oh, this is why he's such a good um, patsy is because and it, it's so easy to set him up because he is a, a pilot himself. And so at the end, it just makes sense. And so if that's Dwight's plan all along, like he chose someone right in D's because D's is a pilot. Like that makes yeah. sense to me. And it's like so easy to, for yeah. Blair to set him up because he's a pilot. I actually question if those are the only things that matter to Renfield, because I got the impression that uh, this is, he doesn't do this all the time. That it's maybe something where he needs to go on a feeding frenzy every few decades or whatnot. Because, I mean, otherwise, where, where has he been for the past century? Right. Yeah, there are a lot of questions about that. And it does seem like if he'd been turned to a vampire so long ago, Maybe he had been kind of in hibernation and he comes out and does this feeding frenzy. Yeah. I, I kind of get that idea too. Um, but just the fact that he turns into a normal human at the end makes me think that it might be just an every so often thing. That he might even just live a normal life. Mm. Earlier in the film, we get introduced to a character, Dottie Walsh, who apparently this has happened to before. Uh, yeah, so she was suffocated with a bag. Basically, Dee's compares her to Blair as she was a new, young, up-and-coming reporter who was then either suicided or murdered. We don't really get much of an explanation on it. I thought it was strongly implied that Dee's killed her. Why? I, I, I think it's so interesting. Like, yeah, what evidence do you have? I'm curious. So when you're first introduced to it, it's just like, oh, what happened to her? That's weird. Like, you wouldn't think that the job getting to her results in her dead with a bag over her head. That's also, like, not a way that people usually kill themselves, so it doesn't make sense to suicide. Yeah. And then as the movie goes on and we start to learn more about Dee's, he even, like, attacks Blair and kidnaps her and locks her in a closet. And we're starting to see, oh, what else is he capable of? And then you think back to Dottie and you're thinking... Was he, like, involved in some way? Not even necessarily that he killed her, but just involved in some way. And then you get to the end of the movie when the Night Flyer uh, hypnotizes Dees and places him in this frenzy where he's seeing all of his previous victims coming back to life. And Dottie is among them. Dottie is, in fact, the principal one who is, like, the last one that shows up. She is the climax. He did something to her. 
I have a different take. I don't think he killed her, but I think he might have been in a position where he could have stopped her and saved her. Mm. And I think that's more in line with his character because I don't see Dee's as a killer, but I see him as someone who will watch someone die for a story. Potentially. It's also possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we, we also have to question, like, how did he get there so quickly? He obviously would have known something happened. Or he would have been, like, oh, waiting for her to do something. Oh, at Dottie's place? Well, yeah, he's taking photos of it. So yeah. all his victims are people he's run stories on, who he's, like, sensationalized their death, made a mockery of their graves. So, like, you know, he desecrates a grave, and Dwight pisses the blood of his victims out into a urinal. It's kind of like Dee's pissing on the graves of the, his victims. Mm. Mm. And, and mm. he has to... That's his upcomings at the end, when they all attack him in his nightmare, where Dwight takes him to hell or whatever, you know. He says, you've been here before, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I I like that interpretation. I think I agree with that one, too. I see it, Dottie is more of a, a metaphor. And thinking back of, like, what I was saying where Dee's is at the beginning, I think Dottie, like, had just died because um, they're talking about her in the office. And I think Jimmy, uh, Catherine, is her replacement, um, and so <laughs> I'm just laughing at the name Jimmy. I know it's great. <laughs> it's terrible. It makes no sense. It's so stupid. And then no, she no, signs... no, it doesn't. No, that's not who Jimmy Olsen is. That makes no oh, sense. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> and then she signs it in her byline at the end for some reason, even though it's a derogatory nickname. It's so great. Respect Jimmy Olsen. Anyway, yeah, Dottie just passed away, and so we are introduced to D's. After he just sees his colleague basically go into, I don't know, the depths of hell journalism, right? Because then he he warns Jimmy not to end up like Dottie. And so I can kind of see Dee's thinking that he's going to end up like Dottie and is a little scared. And maybe that's why he doesn't take the Nightflyer story at first. I don't know. I just I just thought it added a lot to his character. And I'm sure Stephen King, I didn't read the book, but I'm sure Stephen King gets super into, <laughs> to super deep with Deez's character in that way. Okay, well, listeners, I am curious if you think Deez killed Dottie or what your thoughts are about any of the theories or analyses that we brought up today. Tweet us your thoughts at Cadaver Dogs Pod or hit us up on Instagram and let us know. All right, now it's time for our second film. It's a little bit more recent made less than 20 years after a previous film and starring one of my favorite actors. Giving us the rundown is David B. Jacobs. If you're seeing him, you're having the worst day of your life. This is Lou Bloom. He's found a new career. Installing a police scanner in his car, Lou films the scenes of accidents and crimes in Los Angeles to sell the footage to failing news station KWLA6. Quickly, his knack for getting much closer than his competitors, but literally closer to the action, gets him in tight with the producer Nina. Real tight, he kind of forces her into a relationship. It's weird. And his top rival, Joe Loder, offers Lou a job running a second van, but Lou doesn't want to work with Joe Loder. Pretty soon an accident will take Loder out of the running anyway. Meanwhile, Lou has hired his own homeless kid intern, Rick, for 30 bucks a night. Rick either doesn't notice or doesn't say anything as Lou learns to alter scenes for a better shot. Rearrange these pictures on a fridge, slide this dead body into the light, that sort of thing. Soon, Lou and Rick come upon a home invasion in the rich white suburbs, 
and arriving before the cops, they even see the culprits speeding away. But Lou edits out that part of the footage, figuring he can leverage the identities to drag out the story. Forge a showdown with the cops in a more public location. For this, Rick finally asks for more money. He wants to go 50-50 on the 50k reward, and will not compromise. Not a problem, we will simply send Rick in for a closer shot, allowing him to get shot dead. Now Lou is the one with the second wave. This is Nightcrawler, written and directed by Dan Gilroy, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Rene Rousseau, and Liz Hall. Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal's awesome. He spat on me once. Really? We... <laughs> I just love leading with that. No, we we saw him in a play and we got, it was really cool. We got moved to the front row, um, but so close that he spat on us. <laughs> mm. Oh, awesome. Did you save the spit? Oh, I, I swallowed it and I cherished it. <laughs> and then I made a, no, no, I did not make a voodoo Jake Hall. No, that's definitely not in my closet. No, oh, wow. <laughs> no, no. I, I my friend's sister sat next to him on a bus one time, and her other friend was there, and he was just talking about throwing up the whole time, and what? she was like mortified <laughs> that she was so embarrassed in front of Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, I heard he plays a lot of video games, so that's cool. Apologies to Taylor Swift fans. Oh, oh no! <laughs> I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm so out of celebrity <laughs> land. Good. I find it so interesting. So obviously, as we are talking about, Jake Gyllenhaal is a likable person and he plays these quote unquote unlikable characters, um, which we will definitely get into. But did you see yourself relating to Lou Bloom in any way on a personal level? Well, definitely in the beginning. Um, and like before I was in a union job, I was freelancing a lot. And before that, I just couldn't find work in the industry. So in the beginning, as he's like, this guy who doesn't have a lot of uh, any network whatsoever in the beginning. And he's trying to find um, a support group and employment and he's struggling and he kind of feels like the economy's not great. And he's part of our generation. Like that part I could, re I could relate to a lot. Definitely. And just his struggle with like relating to people um, on a personal basis rather than like a professional basis was <laughs> kind of interesting. That part I get. I never uh, assaulted and took down construction workers at night to steal their metal. Oh, that's good to never know. Never done that. Great. Yeah. 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 No, I I did not at all at any <laughs> point. <laughs> no, no point. You related to Lewis. Park. I mean, the, literally, the first scene is him assaulting a construction worker to steal fence wire. Um, now we don't see the aftermath of all that. He might have killed that guy. Like he's definitely capable of it. I know he said like we don't know if these capable of it. Lou Bloom is definitely capable of it. <laughs> One thousand percent, and that's the reason that's the first scene, right? It's like we need to see that he's capable of it. Yeah, and he like rapes his boss, and like no, no, I, there's there's no doubt that he's an evil person that he's an unlikable person that he has issues but i think i agree with rob like when he's going on his whole um monologue in the office of the construction worker and it's like i'm a really hard worker i do this and this and this and this and like he proves that constantly over and over throughout the film he studies yeah hard he works so hard and i'm like yeah i can relate to the struggle of working that hard and never being able to like see benefits 
from it throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Um, even though he does in, in this film, he's obviously found his calling, but it seems like this is something that like he struggled with while trying to find out where he, he belongs in his career. Yeah, I can't relate to that. <laughs> David just had it from the beginning. I'm fucking lazy. <laughs> I can't relate to being a hard worker. <laughs> well, yeah, th- I mean, that's definitely true of me, too. Uh, well, I, at least now, it didn't used to be the case. I used to work my ass off. Um, well, yeah, maybe less so about hard worker, but more of like what you were saying, Rob, about like an unfair work environment. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was like a restaurant runner, it's like I would work twice as hard as the waitresses and make a third the money. You know, they wouldn't give me any tips. It was terrible. But uh, Dan Gilroy said that he thought Bloom was more like a product of his society rather than a guy. And it is pretty interesting because it's not like Bloom gets a kick out of hurting other people. He only does it as a means to do other things. He's like sociopathic. And I think the movie's trying to say that we live in a society where sociopaths can thrive if they find their calling. Like a moral compass is a barrier to success. Yeah, I mean, it largely is like a character study of this psychopath and he 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 gets what he wants like i i've i've seen on like message boards and whatnot people bring up this movie as an example of uh a movie where the character doesn't change i'm like well no he does change he gets everything that he wants his change is just (laughs) a rise to success Yeah, yeah he changes a lot he gets a lot more confident especially in his career moves but he also figures out ways of like manipulating people and talking to them he never he never steps outside of his like officer management orientation jargon what do you even call that shit he like talks like he's talking out of a pamphlet it's It's hilarious so great really cool it's so fascinating yeah like every single response he has is um related to a business plan or his career goals yeah i've talked to like doctorate students who get kind of like that where they've like studied so much it's like taking over their brain and it's like talking to a manual he's like citing this stuff even when they're like running from crime scenes and shit he's like just sees a bunch of dead bodies then he starts talking about like oh you need to assert yourself to get more uh foothold in the workplace and whatnot i mean this just ties into all of that about how society is rewarding to this sociopathic behavior that Mm -hmm. it's like no that is actually how you need to be thinking and that behavior is rewarded yeah, and we see it in the character of, um, well, Renee Russo's character, who yeah. I love because she is yeah. so much like Louis Bloom um, that mm-hmm. she's constantly yelling at the other producers in the newsroom like, no, we need to show, we like, we need to do all this demoralizing shit in order to get ahead. And she's, I mean, she's right. Like, at the end, she's right. Yeah, she is a character who I obviously argue that what Lou does to her is rape. But at the same time, like, she is so obsessed with her career and getting ahead in her job and keeping her job that she is willing to let him do this to her. Yes. Like, that's why he's able to manipulate her. Lewis is more of, like, a pure psychopath or sociopath, however you want to label it. Whereas Rousseau, it, she's definitely, like, been here and kind of been hardened to it. It's, like, in the mm. past when I've I've heard talks of... uh you know, Google has their, like, ethics plan, how, like, we won't become an evil company. Well, I, I heard, like... <laughs> Didn't they take get rid of that rule? <laughs> yeah, well, they did have that rule at one point, pretty recently. And, and I've heard other business insiders talking about it. And they're like, you can only have a rule like that if you rose to the top extremely quickly. 
everyone else kind of gets desensitized to business practices. Yeah. You know, whether, whether it's Facebook just shamelessly stealing everything from other social platforms or other companies absolving other uh, entities through more nefarious means, this movie's purely, clearly allegorical for like business practices. That's why it's so important that Lewis talks as if he's talking straight out of a PR pamphlet. It's because the movie really wants you to know that we're not just talking about news outlets here. We're talking about business practices at large in our current society. Oh, yeah. And that these types of practices, this dog-eat-dog world, is the only way to get ahead. And um, you benefit greatly through a lack of conscience. I think it also talks a lot about some class struggle as well. You know, Lewis is almost forbidden of entering this this higher level of his career because he simply looks the way he is or because he's a thief people kind of like gatekeep him out of that way much like much like the the wealthy and powerful do and i think this is talked about a lot when we're in the newsroom and they're like you know no one cares about these stories of poor working class people you you gotta show the rich people you have Mm -hmm. to show the affluent neighborhoods like that's where the stories are definitely they they don't care if bad things are happening to poor people yeah, uh, and he's constantly – he takes advantage of people who are in his position constantly. Like at the end, he has three interns. Throughout the movie, he had an intern who was getting a stipend of $30 a night, which is disgusting. I mean this yeah. movie was made in 2014, but that's far, far below minimum wage. Oh, yeah. And I can relate because the first movie I ever worked on, I was paid a stipend of $200 a week. And at the end, the producer was like, listen, I'm really sorry for you for this, but – we have to put you on the books if we pay you $600 in checks. So we have to pay you in cash. And he's like, yeah, I didn't have enough change. So he paid me in fucking quarters for the last $10. That's disgusting. That's yeah, horrible. He just pulled it out. And then he dropped a whole lot of the ground. I had to like pick him up. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. And it was like, and I get it. We're like an indie gross movie. But that's so stupid. I was 23. I didn't know any better. The first feature I ever did, they offered me $600 for the entire month. Um, and then after two days, they said that they, they could no longer afford that. And the director even tried to like gaslight and he was like, oh, well, you're not helping the grips move their stuff. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not a grip. Well, or at least that's what I would have said now. At that point, I was just fully gaslit by it. Oh, that's terrible. Then they decided to prorate. So they only paid me 60. They prorated not only the $600, but they prorated my reimbursements. Jesus I lost money Christ. on this job. The class struggle, it's like, you know, he says, I, I'll sell you this tape for no less than 15000 because it's three rich people getting killed in a mansion rather than yeah. three Mexicans getting killed at a food stand. It's like that's what sells more. And they're trying to sell this idea, this fake news idea of urban crime infiltrating the suburbs. Oh, yeah. One of the one of the producers comes to Renee Russo's character. I can't remember her name for the life of me. Nina. Um, Nina. What is it? Nina. Nina. When he comes to Nina and is like, "Oh, we found out why they um, killed these people. That these people are actually uh, <laughs> drug dealers, and it was actually like a drug deal gone bad or something." Um, and, the, and then she's like, "No, no, no, no. That's not the story. Like, we'll tell it later. But no, no, no. This has to be like this has to. It's it's fear mongering. It's one hundred percent fear mongering." I mean, at that point, also, she sold her body for this story, so do you blame her? Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> when he brings her a super violent video, her only question about it is, is it legal to show this? Are, are we allowed to? 
She doesn't care if it's ethical. Like, they literally say, it's not ethical. She says, I don't care. Is it legal? Yeah, that was so funny. That was so good. <laughs> yeah, the says, legally or ethically? She goes, ethically. No, what are you fucking kidding? Legally. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> it even seems to be commenting a bit on the weird disparagingness of how we show all of this violence in the media because then uh, there's a point when Lou is interviewing a neighbor and she like says the word fucking and he's like, oh, can you repeat it again without swearing? And she's like, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting too because the scene that you just described morally and legally, when they do show the images, they blur out the faces. They do not blur out the gory mess uh, of this woman having been shotgunned and her insides are everywhere. They don't blur that out. It's like violence is fine. We have no problem desensitizing everyone to violence and gore and like actual trauma. It's just when when we say the word fucking that we're not allowed to say fucking. This is like a second tier news program, right? Yeah, this is the, the bottom rated news show in LA. Is how they describe right. it. It's it's a very like tabloid esque newsroom right what i found really interesting um when we first see lewis bloom in his apartment and he turns on the television and he's watching i don't even know who turns on channel six but he turns on a bunch of these different news channels and we kind of see a version of it you know the very first thing that he turns on is uh, here's something about the lottery here's something about um a carjacking here's it's still like sensationalist news no matter mm -hmm. what yeah it's really cool it's the new wave of tabloid rather than seeing it in supermarkets we can see it on our cell phones and on our tv right it is the news now <laughs> yeah there's nothing else <laughs> there is this idea of like fabrication i think there's a big difference between uh calling what happens in nightcrawler fake news and calling what happens in the night flyer fake news because the night flyer like it, it's such a discredited yeah source the tabloid magazines in the front of the supermarket as you're leaving and you're at the cashier you're not supposed to believe that bigfoot's baby is out there or <laughs> that there's bat boy or whatever or 100 what's the one i saw 130 year old man gets married 90 year old son says he's insane <laughs> right that's discredited it's okay if it's fake so like it is sensationalist and it is fiction but what they're doing in nightcrawler where they're spread fear-mongering that, to me, seems more like a fake news type thing. If that's all you've heard, you might think it's true because it's it's from a supposedly credible source. Right. Yeah, he says, on definitely. TV, it looks so real. <laughs> I think our fake news today has even pushed farther than Nightcrawler did, where it's just outright spewing propaganda and like made-up bullshit that people have made up as fact. Well, it's a little different. A lot of it today is like, this person said this. I won't tell you if it's fake or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Nightcrawler is, the news are withholding information. And they're going to release yes. it, but they're going to release it in like the fine print. The off hours yeah. are going to talk about the real cause, which is a drug-related triple murder, not a triple murder that's just urban crime filtering into the suburbs. It's just an escalation, I think, really, of what Nightcrawler was getting at. And I mean, Lou Bloom would totally be on board with everything going on with fake news today. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. It's you could almost foresee um, the future of Lewis Bloom being uh, a consultant on a campaign or something. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Working for um, who's the guy in the dead zone working for that guy? <laughs> My God, what a beautiful day. Ever saw House of Cards? That one character is always doing the uh, nefarious stuff. 
you know, making people disappear and whatnot. Yeah, you can see Louis Bloom in that kind of role because he doesn't have the charisma or whatnot to be, like, the face of anything. I mean, he is charismatic in his own way. Like, he's he's mesmerizing. You can't look away from him. But you, you don't trust him. And the other people in the movie don't even trust him. They realize right. that they can get something out of him, but I don't think anyone really trusts him. At the end, even Rick's like, no, you're this is fucking illegal. Uh, give me more money or I'll call the cops. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. No, it's I think that's a really good point. It's like how you see people react around him because you're right. They don't like him. They don't trust him. They don't agree with what he's doing, some of them, but they still need him. He makes himself indispensable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is so scary and in a way like, like kind of also proves what he says at the end where he's like, no, I don't like have a problem with people. I just don't like people and I've never liked people. And you're like, yeah, I can see why. Everyone is kind of awful in this movie. (laughs) The cops fully know that he is guilty. They just can't prove it. I think he's only charismatic due to the medium of film. It's like if you met a person like that in real life who just starts spewing manual stuff, you'd instantly be turned off by them. That's fair. There's an MMA fighter, Michael Chandler, and every time he talks, it sounds like he's quoting a self-help magazine. And it's funny, like the first few times you're like, wow, that's pretty interesting. They're like, oh, you just talk in like fortune cookie slogans. I think the greatest irony is at at the end of the movie, Lou tells his new interns that um, I think it's like the last line. I would never ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. That's awesome. He's not lying. Right. He's not lying at all. I love it. He's fully willing to put his life on the line throughout the movie. It opens up by asking for an unpaid internship at, like, a construction site. Like, no, he's absolutely willing to do everything that he's asking of everyone else in the movie. That doesn't mean he's good. (laughs) That doesn't mean he's right (laughs) to ask those things. (laughs) Right, but it, it, it gives us the impression that these people will then do everything that he's done, right? And that, like, there's, like, an infection, the Lou Bloom infection growing. Yeah, everyone who meets him is is worse off by the end of the movie. It really is like an expose on, like, internships and exploitation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it really is. I, I love how Rick is, like, asking for a raise, and he's like, fine, give me a number. And Rick just has no concept of how much he's worth, and he's like, uh, 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 75? Yeah. <laughs> no. He's like, all right, deal. And he's like, wait, I could ask for more? He's like, absolutely, but the deal's finished. <laughs> so sad. Yeah, he takes advantage of Rick at the end. He, like, he sees Rick as him at the beginning in almost a way of, like, nope, you got to learn. You got to you gotta put in the work, and uh, I'm going to get Oh, I don't see that at all. Maybe the first time I watched the movie, I thought that, but I've seen it, like, three times now, and I think that when he's introduced to Rick, he's just like, oh, this is a guy I can take advantage of. Well, that's, that's what I meant, is, like, in terms of, like, him at the beginning is more of someone that's, like, left out of the upper management, the place to make money, okay. the bigger part of the career. No, he's not, he's not like him personality-wise or, like, any of that. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, I, think, I think positionally he's like him. Like, he's in a position where he can't find a job and no one will hire him. And he's, he's put in a predicament where he has to do these awful things to rise ahead. Right. And that, and that's what I'm saying. And then and then Bloom keeps him in that spot. Right. Like he makes sure that he stays down there and he doesn't like rise up to, to his level. And I, I actually think he wants to keep Rick around. But then when he realizes that Rick is not going to be reliable and he's going to backstab him when he gets the chance, that's why he has him killed. Because I think before then, when he senses Rick's hesitation, he is sincere when he's like, I'm going to give you a raise. I'm going to have you rise up in the company. And I think had Rick 
gone along with the plan and kind of played nicer and like improved, he would have actually kept him around. I agree with you. I, I mean, Rick is useful to him because he can manipulate Rick. Once he's no longer able to manipulate Rick, he's no longer useful. Hmm. But I don't, I don't know if it's pure manipulation because I think he would have been okay with like a smarter partner who maybe asked for more but was willing to do these things. It's more the hesitation and it is kind of the lack of exploitation. When he, when he realizes that he, he can't rely on Rick to do these certain things, he can't exploit him in these ways, then he's no longer useful. But it's also, yeah. it's a sense of like self-preservation. He's like, wow, this guy could fuck things up for me too. Because now Rick is, threat is making threats against me. So it, it kind of works out very nicely for Lou that he is able to get Rick killed without like really doing much himself. What would he have done if the circumstances hadn't lined up that way? Mm. Yeah. Uh, could he not also just fire him? <laughs> like, why does he have to murder him? Rick could go to the police. Rick could probably get him arrested. Interesting. Yeah, fair. fair he would fair. Have probably just look for another similar opportunity. Probably, yeah. It might not yeah. have been right there on the spot, but he would have killed him like in the coming weeks or whatever. Yeah, he might have just actually killed him on his own. Maybe. If he thought he could get away with it, then I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, so, so Rick is like a recovering addict, or he's still an addict, right? That's kind of... The idea we get from that? Oh, I didn't see that. I didn't pick up on that. Maybe. He acts like an addict. He's very nervous around people. He has trouble speaking. He's, he's recently, a, he's a convict, right? Did they say that? I, I think in the beginning. That's why he can't get work. And it seems like he's a, his character gives me all the vibes of addict. I just saw that as character traits that bar him from being successful. You know? He's kind of the opposite of Lou, that he's he just wants the money. He doesn't want to really do much which i mean lou is asking for him to like risk his life which is not okay but yeah 30 bucks a night yeah he's like oh yeah let's just speed through all this traffic we're gonna pass trucks on the highway and whatnot in super dangerous maneuvers and rick is like dude stop <laughs> i know it's incredible because it's really dangerous when i was doing like indie stuff or whatever like i used to do way more dangerous stuff than i do now and i was getting paid way less oh yeah because you would do it because yeah. you, like, wanted to work your way up, right? Oh, yeah. I remember talking to a line producer, and he told me that he got his foot in the door by just offering to take half of what they pay other people. Yeah. And they're like, okay, here, we'll pay you $3 an hour. As we're talking about this now, I'm thinking that, you know, we, we mentioned that scene in the beginning where Lou isn't able to get a job because he's a thief. Which, granted, he was trying to sell them stuff he stole in that moment. But now we're also talking about Rick being a convict i i think and not being able to get work because of that is is the movie actually making like some commentary on how we won't let people have a chance at redemption it's it yeah i think it, it comments so much on just like how the american economy works and like all the issues with america in general um yeah in so many little ways yeah i totally agree you guys know about the band of box campaign no no um, so it's a band of box. It's the box on employment applications where they ask you if you've ever been convicted of a crime or not. And mm. basically this campaign, this movement is band the box, make it illegal for employers to ask that question. Yeah, I like that. And that makes sense in, in terms of like this movie. Basically, this movie is proving, hey, that stuff doesn't matter because no matter how evil Lou is in this movie, we can all agree he becomes a success. 
right? Yeah. And that's due to like him being a good businessman. Yes, not the great business practices, but he makes it there. And so it's like, why, why should that box then? Why should that matter if he can just get the job done? It's also just a systemic issue with when convicts aren't able to get work after they've served their time and whatnot. Like, what are they going to do? That Like, this is part of our uh, s- system where we just send people back to jail in a revolving door because literally what else are they supposed to do? Yeah, yeah. it's awful. Yeah, a lot of this movie is about the barrier of entry into any kind of working position and how you kind of have to make it work with a roundabout less than legal weight or you kind of are fucked. Lou is kind of just the soul of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess that, I guess that's kind of sort of what the movie's going for. Uh, I mean, I don't like calling it capitalism per se because like that's just such a broad term. He's like the soul of like corporate not even corp it's not even greed it's like corporate exploitation i don't know corporate drive because the movie seems to making the point that like even with renee rousseau's character that she has to do these things that i think the movie is showing you that these problems are systemic that it is not just that corporations are taking advantage it's that they have to do that I know, but they're systemic in this society as it is now. Like, they're yes. not, and capitalism ex- existed for a very long time, and in a lot of different places, these same problems might not translate. It's all about Reaganomics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get it in there. So, I, I'm wondering how you think these movies work with two similar characters who are both pretty much unlikable, maybe anti heroes. Who um, I find Miguel Ferrer's character like fascinating in the Night Flyer, and I also find Louis Bloom very interesting in uh, Nightcrawler. Although I think the way they actually speak, I find uh, D's a little bit more believable. Like he feels like a real person. Louis oh, wow. Bloom, no. Louis Bloom to me feels like he was created for this universe, like someone who just speaks in kind of. Um, PR management slogans. I, I mean, I've said I've met people similar to that, but they were never exactly like that. What, what do you guys think? How do you think this works? I, I, I mean, the the things with Miguel Ferrer's character not feeling as believable to me is more just that the dialogue isn't good. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just think that the screenplay is uh, bad at dialogue. Um, he himself does a good job at doing his best to make that feel believable but it's it's difficult um his actions i think are mostly believable but still feel like more of an exaggeration whereas lou bloom it just seems to be so much committed to that being the soul of who he is that i believe everything he does that there are people like this the way d's talks in the movie is similar to people i've met like at my job or whatnot who are just dicks you know, and they'll just tell you off and there's like tough love. And I think Miguel Ferrer like really runs with it. And he does a great job with the character. I don't think the script is bad. I don't know why you do. Night Nightcrawler is a lot more on the nose, I think, actually, because when people are saying things, it's like very clearly allegorical. I like that. But I could see how people would be like, ah, that's a little bit, you know, too on the nose, a little bit hammy. But I, I, I find both the characters very like fascinating. And it's very interesting to see them kind of go 
in these directions and do whatever it is, become bloodthirsty bloodsuckers on society. Because they're both, they both kind of serve a very similar role. It's both for journalism. And uh, they're both willing to go that extra mile to fabricate, to put people in danger or harm's way. Uh, Lewis Bloom a lot further than Dee's. Yes. As we've seen. Because uh, we haven't seen Dee's actually put anyone in danger. He does um, lock his assistant in a closet. Yeah. But that, yeah. that's not necessarily dangerous. It's assault and kidnapping. I, I reject the label of Lou Bloom as an anti-hero because I just see him as a full-blown villain. Mm-hmm. But anti-hero is an interesting word to use because it's a very unspecific term. Like, it really means drastically different things in different contexts. I saw a cool video about this recently from Overly Sarcastic Productions, I think. Uh, they had a really good video on anti-heroes where they talked about how the definition of it really changes depending on cultural context. That in classical mythology, Odysseus was considered to be an anti-hero because he had some traits that didn't fully align with heroes. But nowadays we think of like Punisher as an anti-hero, which I think Punisher is a villain. Um, depending on what your d- definition of it is, Spider-Man could be an anti-hero because he has some traits that aren't exactly the idealized hero but i mean there's nothing really evil about him like sometimes we think of it as just someone who's a little bit evil it doesn't really have a definition it's not really a good term <laughs> no it's 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 interesting i guess i kind of see it my interpretation of an anti-hero is hero in less of like the classic sense of hero but more of like hero in replacement of main character in a storyline and I think to me that means like, yeah, having not even a villain, but an immoral person as as the main character to me as anti-hero. And so that's why I I could see Lewis Bloom as an anti-hero, but at no point am I cheering Lewis Bloom on also. And I think that's also something that like we need to see for a hero, right? It's just to like want them to succeed in what they're doing. See, I, I don't I don't know if I sort of agree. And I think uh by connotation, anti-hero equates to like kind of protagonist and that we just say like because lewis bloom shows some sort of heroic uh, traits like he's very brave he does he's cool under pressure you know he does kind of things that a hero only would be capable of but you know without the moral compass so like another good example would be like walter white from breaking bad that's clearly an anti-hero character in the sense that i'm speaking of but he's a very bad guy and I think even in, like, The Devil's Rejects, we kind of want the rejects to survive because they're the heroes of the I movie. Don't. But they're evil people. But that's because you don't like the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I think an anti-hero is basically when you take the villain and make him the main character. But what do you think it is that makes audiences so interested in these anti-hero characters or these villains as protagonists, if you want to put it that way? I think it's different in the two movies. That In the case of The Night Flyer, Miguel Ferrer... We, we don't know about his sliminess from the get-go. So in the beginning of the movie, we are kind of more rooting for him. And then his sliminess is gradually revealed over the course of the film, where we start to see, like, oh, he's doing a little unethical stuff with his tombstone. Oh, now he's, like, assaulting this other co-worker. This is, this is fucked up. This guy is not a good guy. To the point where we are finally, like, satisfied when he has this bad ending at the end when he he when it's all flipped on its head and turned against him 
it, it's more satisfying because we've also been turned against them over the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in the case of Lou Bloom, I think it's more, I mean, from the get-go, we know that this guy is the worst person. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is why it's so great to have an anti-hero, quote, anti-hero for the Nightcrawler in itself. Because in a way, it's almost like us watching a car crash or us, yeah. us experiencing sensationalism. And it's like, it's talking about how, like, we do have this hunger to, like, witness the car crash. Like, we are the people crowding around this movie, crowding around the car crash in order to, like, get a glimpse of the blood, of the gore, of the the horrible fate that befalls these people. I think it also makes a point that in a lot of similar movies, you see the, the Lou Boom-esque character getting redeemed at some point. Like, this is really just a modern reimagining of Ace in the Hole, which is a 1950s movie from Billy Wilder. This is like one of the best directors ever. Uh, you guys should all watch Ace in the Hole. It's incredible. It stars Kirk Douglas as a Lou Bloom-esque character who basically he finds a guy who's been trapped in a cave-in and he decides to milk this story and drag out the amount of the time that this guy is stuck in this spot for as long as he can in order to get the story to just keep going. It becomes a huge media circus. But he's ultimately redeemed in that movie, that he recognizes that this was a bad thing and becomes repentant about it. Which is so unrealistic, right? Like, the real world doesn't have those happy endings. People don't get redeemed. Like I want to call it a happy ending. <laughs> well, yeah, not yeah. necessarily a happy ending, but like... That's why I like seeing people like Lewis Bloom because I'm more in the camp of like people like him exist and I've met them yeah. and they do they do get successful and they don't have to be redeemed. Like the real world doesn't work that way. I'd rather watch something else that reflects the awful world that we live in. <laughs> general Butt Nagin would disagree with you. He's the uh, African general who turned preacher after he had like a host of child soldiers killing people. It does happen. We do see people changing their lives and redeeming themselves. Um, but I think that what you're getting at, Devin, is that, or what you're getting at for me anyway, is that uh, part of why Nightcrawler is so effective is that it does feel like, oh, this is this is what this is really like. This is closer to the real world. And we're it, it doesn't feel like we're being spoken down to. It feels right. like the movie is just being completely level with us, like, no... This guy will go there, and you should be afraid of this person. I, I gotta tell you, I actually kind of feel like Louis Bloom is less of a real character than, like, these, because his motivation is purely success. So I think he's a placeholder for, like, a social mechanism. He's an allegory for the type of person who would do this rather than being a real person with real motivations. Whereas, like, these, he's not only motivated by the success, he's motivated by learning the story and then we learn at the end of the movie that he's not just motivated by learning this story or learning stories in general he's motivated by trying to see that which he can't unsee because these kinds of things have gotten to him they've affected him as a person so his arc is is not exactly a redemption arc but it's realizing uh, his faults so he feels like a severe remorse at the end then when he has to face with it he kind of kind of breaks his psyche whether it's through vampiric magic or whatever so to me, I feel like Deez is like kind of a moral rounded, realistic character, whereas like Lewis Bloom being a sociopath, he's missing a lot of traits that you normally see in a real person. But sociopaths are real. I know, but like to the extent that they really act like this, it's kind of it's pop culture. I'm not saying all people are like Lou Bloom or even that all psychopaths are like Lou Bloom because most of them are not. 
I'm just saying that there are people like Lou Bloom. Okay, so now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section, where we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off this week with The Night Flyer is Devin Shepard. The Night Flyer. I really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> I thought it was so much fun. Um, I keep going back and forth between 2.5 and 3 bones, but I think oh, I'm going to wow. say 2.5 bones. I, I enjoyed it. I think a good part, part of it, um, it did remind me a lot of Tower of Terror, and that's why I enjoyed the crap out of a lot of it. Um, <laughs> I respect the directing. I do. I think there's some really beautiful choices in there. Um, I think Catherine Blair is amazing. And I don't think that her character was even in the book. So just the addition of her character, I think, strengthens this so much more. Um, yeah, the script had faults, um, but there are so many good one-liners. And I enjoy that cheesiness. The special effects makeup was fucking awesome. Um, yeah, and I just had fun watching it. So 2.5 bones for me. All right, David, rip it apart. I feel like I watched a different movie than you <laughs> <laughs> I really like the ideas of the movie. I think the story is good. Credit to Stephen King there. And, I mean, I love Miguel Ferrer, rest in peace. The ending is really good, but it was hard to get through this movie. Like, I was so bored. <laughs> it's It's just overwhelmingly expositional for, like, an hour and a half of its hour 45 minute runtime it's just it it most of the movie is just exposition dump after exposition dump after exposition dump with super hammy dialogue the entire time and it, it i really struggled with it back and forth between one bone and one and a half bones the ending's really good so i'll give it one and a half bones Okay, so David, uh, I'm just going to off the bat double your score. This gets three bones for me. <laughs> I love this movie. I think Miguel Ferrer is great. Uh, yeah, the dialogue's a little bit hammy, but most movies are, and it's fun. It's like he's such an asshole character. Just over-the-top asshole. But, I mean, I've worked with guys like that. There are a lot of guys who are just total assholes at work, and I think he did a great job of portraying it. You know, he's a guy who doesn't give a fuck. He gives you tough love. And uh, Jimmy's really upset about it. And I think she has believable reactions to him. And I've seen people have to deal with bosses like that and come around with it. And I think it's kind of cool. you know. And I love the old school vampire look. I think the vampire design, everything is really fun. It's cool. And the ending is actually a little bit scary when he's in the bathroom. And that's one of my favorite endings to any film. I think it's one of the coolest vampire designs, if not the coolest vampire design I've ever seen. And the blood is great. So three bones. Everyone should watch The Night Flyer. It's a cult classic for a reason. Okay, so moving on to Nightcrawler. Uh, this movie is so beautiful. First of all, the performance that Jake Gyllenhaal gives is incredible. I mean, we've been talking about it a lot, and I don't think we've talked about a performance like that that much on this pod. So incredible performance. Renee Russo also just fucking killer. The script, the script is so dense and so well done. I think like just beautiful. And there's the direction also just like the mastery of images. Cinematography looks great. There's so many motifs and themes and just like it, it says so much and does it so well without being too much. I really like this movie. I think like Maybe 15 minutes too long, was really struggling to get there at the end, but I'm going to have to give it four bones. Four? 
Nice. Wow. I love this film. David, what about you? Yeah, I mean, all of that is very accurate. I've actually used this movie as a reference in my directing several times now. I don't really think it's horror. I think it's just film noir, but that's fine. Like, you're allowed to think of it as horror. I, I don't, it's not not horror. I've seen it three times, so obviously I like it. It, it It's it's really hard to watch. I, I was kind of dreading watching it again. Like, it's just so cynical. Like, I feel so gross when I finish it, you know? It, it's just, it's a little hard to vibe with sometimes. So obviously I'm giving it four bones. Um, <laughs> this, this is a brilliant fucking movie. It changed nothing about it. It's not 15 minutes too long. Every minute is mesmerizing. Rob? Well, you guys give away four bone ratings way too willy nilly. I'll say that off the bat. It's Nightcrawler. I love this movie. It is really good. I, I find it very interesting from beginning to end. I agree with Devin. I think it is 15, 20 minutes too long. But I would say that's more in the first half rather than towards the end. I really like the ending. It's interesting. I Again, I really don't think he plays like a realistic character. It's allegorical. It's kind of on the nose at times, but it is fun. It's really interesting. I like cynical movies and I think it's highly cynical. Uh, I'm going to give it three bones. I almost feel bad because I think I like the Night Flyer more, but I think they're both in the three bone realm. Night, night, three bones. <laughs> night, night, blood bags. Until next time. Okay, I want more money. A lot more. 